Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode eight of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I appreciate your patience as you waited with bated breath for this episode. I accidentally took a summer break. I had two family reunions and a lot of work and a lot of travel, and I just, you know, the criminal broads. I abandoned the criminal broads temporarily, for which I apologize. But I'm back, and I hope it will be worth the wait because I am here today with a story that I really like because it feels like a narrative we've heard before, but it isn't. As with all things true crime, it's very, very murky. So let's get to it. This story has some of the elements of sort of a quintessential American adventure, uh, which makes it appealing on its surface. There's a girl, um, there's a gun, and there's a getaway car. Do you remember being 14? When I was 14, my family lived in a little town in North Carolina, and I had about 25 crushes. Now, none of them knew that I had a crush on them, and I didn't talk to any of them, but my feelings for them were powerful. At one point, I was obsessed with the boys on my brother's baseball team. Oh, now those are real athletes, I thought to myself. Another time, I planted a daffodil bulb at the bottom of our yard in honor of a boy I knew who was really cute and really loud and who had fallen into a bush and somehow punctured his thigh really badly. I thought that was so major. The wound, the brush with violence, the surviving. I look back at that moment now, me kneeling in the dirt, planting something for a boy who never knew I liked him, with awe at how intensely a 14-year-old girl can create something out of nothing. I was spinning this intense love story from pure air, like I was spinning gold. What were you like when you were 14? Who did you like? Was it someone you'd like today? Someone you wish you ended up with? What did you do when you were 14? Would you want to be remembered by it? Would you want to be judged by it? sentenced for it? Carol Ann Fugate was 14 when she found herself on a killing spree with her boyfriend, Charles Starkweather. If Bonnie and Clyde had captured the nation's violent romantic heart in the 30s, then Carol and Charlie were the Bonnie and Clyde of the 50s. He with his hair like James Dean, she tiny and plump and adorable. The thing was, Bonnie had wanted to go with Clyde. Had Carol wanted to go with Charlie? I mean, an entire state was terrified. But my God, he had me in his clutches. And I was not a Bonnie and Clyde having fun as it was depicted. In 1957, in the city of Lincoln, Nebraska, Carol Ann Fugate seemed like a very tiny adult, sometimes. She was just over five feet, had brown hair and blue eyes, and was less sheltered than the other girls at school, so she had a worldly air to her. She wore jeans with a little pair of majorette boots and men's shirts rolled up at the sleeves. She was confident. She knew how to curse. She wanted to be a nurse when she grew up. People sometimes said she looked 18, not 14. But she was also just a baby in some ways. 
She was a slow learner in school and had already failed a grade. She'd barely been out of Lincoln. She knew very little about the outside world. She came from a broken home and lived with her mother, stepfather, and baby sister. One day, her older sister introduced her to Charles Starkweather, who was five years older than Carol and who thought Carol was absolutely wonderful. Charlie Starkweather had red hair, green eyes. He had a speech impediment and bow legs from a genetic defect. His eyesight was so bad that he was almost blind. Despite that, he was an incredible marksman. And some people were pretty sure that he had some sort of mental defect, too. He was bullied mercilessly, his childhood had been bleak, and he was now a furious teenager who wanted the world to burn. When he was 17, he started having visions of being visited by death, who would appear to him as a whistling sound, or a figure that was part man, part bear. Charlie loved death, or grew to love death, and felt comforted by these visits. He may have been a slow kid who was barely literate, but he had this weirdly poetic side to him. Aside from death, his other great love was nature. He felt calm, inspired, at peace when it was just him and the great outdoors. In fact, despite his rage, he loved beauty and even had talent as an artist, but he never developed it. The world was against Charlie Starkweather, and Charlie Starkweather was against the world because of that. Everything in his life made it clear to him he was worthless. Just a dumb, poor, ugly kid. So you can imagine how his life lit up when Carol arrived. Because Carol loved his red hair. She loved his bow legs. She said she wished they were even more bowed. She made him feel cool. He wanted to buy her everything in the world, even though his family was yelling at him that he was spending way too much money on that girl. She was his ticket out of misery, and the two of them would retreat into their own little world, using their love as a respite against the people who told them they weren't worth much. But Charlie didn't want to retreat to paradise with Carol. He wanted to go out blazing. Everything changed when I found a girl to stick to me, he said later. Killing with Carol looking on done something to me. She gave me something that wasn't there before. She put the spark and thrill into the killing. The two of them may have been outcasts, losers, but when they were together, it didn't matter. We wanted to be separated from everybody else, he said. People who looked at us would only laugh. Friends were not for us. When Charlie committed his first murder at age 18, shooting a gas station attendant after a robbery gone bad, and when he didn't get caught, it made him feel invincible. He had Carol, and the cops couldn't get him, so he had everything. Later, he said, I wanted her to see me go down shooting it out and knowing it was for her. You can see how this would have sounded incredibly romantic to a 14-year-old girl. On the evening of Monday, January 27th, 1958, police in Lincoln, Nebraska were told to look out for a black Ford that was being driven by 19-year-old Charles Starkweather, wearing blue jeans and a black leather jacket, and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, wearing blue jeans, her hair in a ponytail. Charlie was assumed to be armed and dangerous and was wanted for a triple murder, the deaths of Carol's mother, stepfather, and two-year-old baby sister. 
Everyone assumed that Carol was a hostage and that it wouldn't be long until they'd find her body in a ditch somewhere. The very next day, police had surrounded a farmhouse about 30 minutes outside of the city. They were sure Charlie and Carol were holed up inside, but after they threw in tear gas and nobody emerged, they broke in only to discover that the house was empty and that, in the wash house out back, there was another body. The body of August Meyer, a kind old farmer who had been shot at close range. Not far off, they found Charlie's abandoned car and in a nearby storm cellar, a horrible sight, the bodies of two teenagers lying on top of each other. The boy, Robert Jensen, had been shot six times in the head. The girl, Carol King, had been thrown on top of him. She was partially nude and had been sexually assaulted. The sight of her body convinced many that the other Carol had surely met a similar fate. The next day, another shocking discovery was made. Back in Lincoln, three more bodies, and this time the bodies were found in the rich part of town. The victims were a wealthy couple named C. Lauer and Clara Ward, and their maid, Lillian Fensel. The man had been shot, and the two women stabbed to death. As the manhunt ramped up, fear shot through the city of Lincoln. Charles Starkweather, the troubled nobody who people either hated or ignored, was suddenly the devil, loose on the streets. And like the devil, he was everywhere, and he could be coming to get you. Schools and businesses closed as police searched block by block for the couple. Parents carried shotguns. Boyfriends went out in packs and tried to hunt Charlie down. Stores sold out of rifles, and people jumped at the sight of men in doorways. The couple was assumed to be driving the ward's black car now. One detail at the ward's house convinced some people that Carol was still alive. All of Mrs. Ward's fancy clothes had been scattered around her dressing room, and her expensive perfume had been poured all over the floor. It seemed to be the work of a girl, people thought. A mad girl. Finally, that night, breaking news came over the wires. There had been a capture eight hours away in a tiny town in Wyoming, deep in the Badlands, and there had also been a murder. One final victim, a traveling salesman, had been blasted into Kingdom Come when Charlie tried to steal his car. And what of the girl? The girl was alive. The girl had been with him all along. Charlie made a total of seven statements of record before his trial even started, and they all contradicted each other. The biggest question was, how guilty was Carol? When they were captured, Charlie said Carol was innocent. And then he said she wasn't so innocent. And then he said she was very, very guilty. In fact, he said she was the most trigger-happy person he had ever met. When asked later why he had changed his story about Carol's guilt, he said that he hadn't been lying earlier. He'd just been leaving things out. I just didn't tell you anything about her, he said, because I thought she could get away with it easier. But Carol maintained her innocence from the beginning. In fact, when the two of them were captured, she ran straight to the police, screaming, He's going to kill me. He's crazy. He just killed a man. Charlie said that before the murder spree began, they had been annoyed at their families, who kept trying to interfere with their love. Carol said that she'd broken up with Charlie right before the murder started, and that's what made him go so crazy. And from there, the tale of their killing spree unspooled before the public like a bad movie, full of twists, 
plot holes, unbelievable details, and lots and lots of blood. About one week before the couple went on the run, Charlie came over to Carol's house and got into an argument with Carol's mother about whether or not he should be dating Carol. Things got violent. Carol's mom, Velda Bartlett, started hitting him in the face, and Charlie responded with rage, shooting both her and her husband, and then throwing a knife. He was horrifically accurate with knife throwing and had practiced it often in front of Carol. Throwing a knife at their two-year-old daughter. Charlie was not a practiced killer, and the murders took a long time to complete. When he was done, he wrapped up the bodies and hid them behind the house. At times, Charlie claimed that Carol was there all along, egging him on like a baby psychopath. Carol says she was at school the whole time, and that when she came home, Charlie told her that he'd captured her family, and that if she didn't obey him, he would slaughter them all. She says that it was this fear, the fear that he would kill her family, that kept her glued to his side during the subsequent bloody days. Either way, the two of them stayed in the house for the next six days, performing a horrible parody of 1950s married life. They had sex, they watched TV, Carol put her hair in curlers. After a couple days went by with no word from Carol's mother, family members began dropping by, wondering what was up. Carol turned them all away at the door, saying that the entire family had the flu and that the doctor was ordering everyone else to stay away. Later, her family members remembered that she looked pale and disheveled and kept saying things like, please don't try to get in. Mom's life will be in your hands if you do. Eventually, her grandma got suspicious enough to call the police. When the couple got wind of this, they went on the run. Carol left a note on the door telling people to go away because of the flu and signed it, Miss Bartlett. Their car got stuck near the farmhouse in Bennett, where the farmer August Meyer lived. They asked Meyer for help, and then Charlie shot him. Later, he claimed it was in self-defense. And the two of them took guns and supplies from his house and then set off into the freezing night. Now, they could have spent the night at the farmhouse, but here's why they didn't. And this is so telling of their mental state and the fact that they were really just kids. Charlie had covered Meyer's body with a white blanket. And then when he checked on the body later, he saw that the blanket had moved. Now, the wind had probably just blown it off, but Carol and Charlie were so spooked that they couldn't bear to stay there. Carol seemed to think that Meyer was going to suddenly sit up and scream at them. As they were trying to figure out where to take shelter, a car came trundling down the road. That was Robert Jensen and Carol King out on a date, the last date they would ever take. Later, Charlie denied raping the girl and said that Carol was actually the one who'd killed her. The writer William Allen says in the book Starkweather, the story of a mass murderer, that Robert and Carol were the opposites of Charlie and Carol. They saw nothing wrong with the world and nothing major to rebel against, he writes. They were happy to be reproductions of their parents and had never been alienated from anything. Maybe Charlie and Carol sensed all that, sensed their clean, scrubbed happiness, their hopeful future, the white wedding, the little house, the well-behaved children, and couldn't stand the vision. And so they fired. The couples may well have been from two different worlds, but death linked them in the end forever, at least in the history books. After that murder, Charlie and Carol ended up sleeping in Robert Jensen's car that night, 
and then they broke into the ward's house the next day and held Mrs. Ward and her maid hostage. It was a bizarre tableau. Carol took a nap on the expensive couch. Charlie dyed his hair dark with shoe polish and forced Mrs. Ward to make him waffles. But after that, Carol and Charlie disagree vehemently on who killed the wards. Charlie says that he shot Mr. Ward when he came home from work and stabbed Mrs. Ward once, but that he didn't kill her, and so Carol must have stabbed both her and the maid to death. In fact, later, on the wall of his cell, Charlie would scrawl an eerie math equation, adding up all the people they'd killed and writing that Carol had killed two people, both female. Carol denied all of it. After the killing of the wards and their maid, Carol and Charlie tore off westward in the wards' black car, planning to stay with Charlie's brother, who lived in Wyoming. Hours later, when they heard on the news that everyone was looking for that specific car, they found a traveling salesman named Merle Collison sleeping in his car alongside the highway. Charlie shot him over and over, grabbed his keys, and tried to drive off. But the car stalled, and Charlie turned to the back seat where Merle's body lay bleeding. Man? Man, are you dead? He said. He wanted Merle to help him with the car. It's another instance of how Carol and Charlie seemed to have no idea of the seriousness of what they were doing. No comprehension that when you put that many bullets into a human body, that person isn't going to sit up again. When another driver stopped to help the couple with the stalled car, this driver saw Merle's body in the back seat, saw that Charlie had a gun, and began wrestling it away from him. Miraculously, a police officer was passing by at that moment, and the sight obviously caught his attention. Carol ran towards the officer, screaming. Charlie peeled off, going over a hundred miles an hour, as the policeman opened fire and gave chase. The chase didn't last long, and there was no blaze of glory. One of the bullets shattered the windshield, and a piece of flying glass cut Charlie's ear. He thought that he had been shot because he was bleeding and he pulled the car over and surrendered. Charlie was thrown into jail. Carol was heavily sedated and given over to the sheriff's wife before both were driven back to Nebraska to be tried for murder. They would have been flown back. It was quicker, but they were afraid of flying. In the car, Charlie told the sheriff, I always wanted to be a criminal, but not this big a one. Charlie's trial was a huge occasion. The press began calling him the mad dog killer, and teenagers clamored around the jail, trying to catch a glimpse of him. They wanted to date him or to be him. They hated him. They were intrigued by him. The bow-legged boy who couldn't pronounce R's correctly was suddenly getting his photo taken. He grinned in those photos and tried his best to look like his hero, James Dean, Cigarette falling from his lips, hair swooped back, a devil-may-care attitude. Still, despite his teenager-in-a-violent-movie aesthetics, the jury found him guilty of the murder of Robert Jensen and sentenced him to die in the electric chair. By the time Carol's trial rolled around a few months later, her attorney was furious to find that she'd cut off her youthful ponytail and was now sporting a cropped curly hairdo, a change that made her look older and more worldly. But that didn't change the fact that she was still the youngest girl in U.S. history to be brought to court on a first-degree murder charge, though despite that dubious honor, Carol's trial didn't have the electricity that Charlie's did. 
Perhaps it was because she seemed sullen and closed off where Charlie seemed wild and rebellious. Perhaps it was because, at the end of the day, she was just a young girl and that wasn't as exciting to people. In fact, the biggest excitement at her trial was Charlie's appearance when he took the witness stand to testify that she, too, was guilty. Witnesses say that Carol looked terrified when Charlie entered the room. Carol was being tried as an adult, a controversial choice, and the debate at the heart of her trial was whether she had been a terrified hostage or a willing accomplice. The prosecution sought to show that she had plenty of chances to escape during the murder spree. The defense sought to prove that she couldn't have gotten away. The truth of the matter was that Carol did have more than enough time to escape and plenty of opportunities to ask for help from authority figures. When family members stopped by the Bartlett house, why didn't she say anything then? The defense argued that Charlie was hiding in the house during those interactions, pointing a gun at Carol. Okay, well, what about the times when Charlie admitted that he left the Bartlett house? Why didn't she run off then? The defense said that she was tied up. All right, well, what about the waitress at the restaurant next to a gas station who saw Carol walk into the restaurant and order two hamburgers all alone? The defense argued that Carol had actually started writing a note saying help, but never got the chance to slip it to the waitress. Okay then, what of another gas station visit when the gas station attendant noticed that Carol was sitting in the passenger seat with two guns on her lap? Why didn't she turn those guns on Charlie? She was scared, the defense argued. She thought that if she did anything, he would kill her family. She didn't know her family was already dead. Well, if she didn't know that they were dead, why did the police find newspaper clippings about their deaths in her pockets when the two of them were caught? The defense argued that she didn't understand them, she hadn't read them, and so on and so forth, both sides attempting to understand why a 14-year-old girl might have stayed by the side of a killer. For the sake of the trial, the jury needed to decide one way or another whether Carol could have gotten away or not. But is it possible that the answer was somewhere in the murky middle? That Carol might have not been wholly hostage or wholly accomplice, but something in between? See, there were all sorts of strange, surreal moments to this murder spree, like when Carol thought August Meyer's corpse might somehow move, or the fact that she carried newspaper photos of her dead family but said she didn't understand that they were dead. And these moments pointed to Carol not really understanding the severity of the situation. At one point, Charlie said that he suspected that Carol knew her family was dead, but never asked about it. Maybe she knew things weren't quite right, but didn't really know how to fix them. She was so young that maybe death still felt unreal to her. She was still in love with her boyfriend, excited by the guns and the joyrides, enamored by Charlie's talk about how it was us against the world. And maybe at the exact same time, she was terrified of the older boy in the seat beside her and hoping beyond hope that her family was okay and convinced that things would maybe just be better and maybe magically work themselves out if she just stayed put and didn't make a fuss. Carol took the stand in her own defense, and journalists noted that her voice was strangely adult-like. She said that she'd broken up with Charlie right before the killing spree, that she'd been tied up whenever he left her alone, and that she'd written a note that said, help, police, don't ignore, but never given it to anybody. 
She also said that she was froze stiff when she heard Charlie shoot the teenagers. She spoke of trying to warn people in very oblique ways. She said that when the police had come by her house to check on her, because they had come by once and Carol had convinced them to go away, she said that she'd told them nasty rumors about her brother-in-law, thinking that the police would then tell her brother-in-law about the rumors and her brother-in-law would realize that something was wrong since Carol was spreading rumors about him. She talked about the note that she put on her mother's door. She'd signed the note, Miss Bartlett, and Miss Bartlett would have technically been her little sister. Carol said she thought that that little incongruity might have given her away. But then there was more proof against her, like how the sheriff from Wyoming testified that Carol had run to him screaming and had told him that Starkweather had killed her family, which contradicted her later narrative that she hadn't run away from Starkweather because she thought he would spare her family. Even 14-year-old girls must realize that they cannot go on eight-day murder sprees, said the prosecutor in his closing statement. The jury was convinced by this and found her guilty of murder while in the perpetration of a robbery and gave her life in prison. Carol sobbed at the news. No, I'd rather be executed, she said. Someday they're going to find out they made a mistake. Carol was only 15 when her sentence began, and she wasn't allowed to be with any of the other prisoners until she turned 16, so she spent the first 222 days of her sentence in solitary confinement. She was so small that they had to make custom prison clothes for her. Anyone who saw her could have seen that she was a child in a place that wasn't meant for children. But she started school there in the prison and watched the tree on the prison grounds grow and read Little Women and found that she loved the book. Her one big hope in prison was that Charlie would change his story before his execution date. She knew that a word from him could save her. In fact, she grew so desperate to make this happen that she sent a telegram to the President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, asking him for help but his special counsel responded that the case was a state matter and that the president had no jurisdiction over it. On June 25, 1959, Charlie went to the electric chair with resigned calm. He had no last words. He said nothing that could have saved her. Still and slowly, things got better for Carol in prison. She continued to study with the teacher and read independently, she got really good at sewing and gave her fellow prisoners lessons. She met with a psychologist, and she eventually became Catholic. Religion was a huge balm for her soul. The priest told her that her sins were now washed away and that it was up to her what she did with the rest of her life, with her thoughts, with her conduct. That acknowledgement of her free will, even though she was in prison, must have felt so liberating to her. As an adult, Carol had privileges, like working the gate that released prisoners into the outside world and leading tours of outsiders around the facilities. People on those tours would often ask her, in hushed and intrigued tones, which of the prisoners was the infamous Carol Ann Fugate? And Carol would respond that um, she wasn't sure where Carol had gone as she didn't see her around at the moment. A new superintendent came to the prison, full of humane and progressive ideas about rehabilitating prisoners, and her changes included letting the female prisoners walk into town, swim in the public pool at certain times, and even work outside of the prison. 
Carol wasn't technically allowed to work outside because of her sentence, but the authorities were so pleased with her behavior that they thought she should be given the chance to volunteer. So she worked at a local Nazarene church, and the pastor there liked her so much that one day he asked if she would want to volunteer in the nursery. When one of the mothers at the church heard this, she was terrified. She remembered the hunt for Carol and Charlie well. She remembered the fear, and she said that she needed some time to think the whole thing over. For her and for a lot of people, the old questions were rising up in their minds again. Is it humane to keep someone in prison forever? Can people like Carol be rehabilitated? Should people be punished for the things they did at 14? And at some point, when there's no easy answer to anything, does some person just have to extend mercy? The mother thought through all these things and came back to church the next day, holding her one-year-old son, Johnny, and placed the kid into Carol's arms. I just thought we all need a chance to prove ourselves, she told the pastor. I just put myself in her place and thought, well, my life would really be over if no one would trust me again. After 18 years in prison, Carol was released on parole. She had been training for a job as a nurse's aide, and she moved to Michigan to do just that. But because of her record, she was unable to actually work as an aide. Years later, when the Daily Beast interviewed her stepson, they found out that she'd been working as a hospital janitor for decades, cleaning bedpans and mopping hospital floors. The stepson was from her late-in-life marriage to Frederick Clare, a gentleman she met at a casino. In 2014, the two of them were on vacation, driving to another casino, actually, when their car rolled over on the interstate, killing Frederick, who was 81, and horribly injuring Carol, who was 70. As she recovered in the hospital, the police came and asked her stepson, can you think of any reason why she might have killed her husband? Newspapers covered the accident, still calling her Starkweather's girlfriend. Yes, despite the decades she had spent keeping her head down, the specter of murder still drifted over her. Always had, always will. In the 70s, before she was paroled, she told an NBC reporter, It's something that I'll always carry with me, and it lives in the back of my mind. It's behind a little door. I really wish that there was something I could do. I wish it was a magic word I could say, or a magic phrase, or something that would, you know, that could bring these people back. I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry it happened. Carol is, in many ways, a shell of a woman, said her stepson after the accident. She walks a definite walk of shame. Your parents and your baby sister too I would run 
in the art made about them. Carol and Charlie are star-crossed lovers. Bruce Springsteen sings about them in his song, Nebraska. Sheriff, when the man pulls that switch, sir, and snaps my poor neck back, you make sure my pretty baby is sitting right there on my lap. It's a romantic image. The couple who kills together, hurtling into hell together. But in fact, Charlie never asked to have Carol on his lap during his execution. It was Guy Starkweather, Charlie's father, who came up with that image. And he wasn't being romantic at all. He was saying that if his son deserved to die, then Carol deserved to die, too. More songs were made about them. Starkweather by Icky Blossoms, which you just heard. Badlands by Church of Misery. Keep Searchin', We'll Follow the Sun by Del Shannon. Hate So Real by Jay Church. Movies, too. Badlands, Natural Born Killers, The Sadist. The romantic tone of films like Badlands fit well with Charlie's vision of the two of them driving a hundred miles an hour into the West together, driving towards death as a way to be together and to be fully themselves. But the romance of it all was only in Charlie's head. The reality was a grim series of aborted starts, mistakes, indecision, and incredible stupidity, writes William Allen. It was an expression not of disenchanted youth, but rather of terrible poverty of mind and spirit. And the sad unspooling of Carol's life shows just that. For one week of thrill and terror, and a few years of incredible infamy, she got an adulthood spent in prison, and a life spent with horror always locked behind that little door in her mind. There was nothing romantic about it. Still, the teenagers of the 1950s thrilled to their story. When Charlie was executed, about 50 of them cruised around the prison, blasting their radios and drinking beer. They loved the story of the boy who spent his teenage years visited by death itself, and the girl in blue jeans who went along for the ride. They loved that story. They just wanted to make up their own ending. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.